Welcome to BuildCast, where we delve into the backstories of experts and other players in the built environment to reveal their journey and how they got built. Join us in our conversation to learn from their life experiences, to be the catalyst for innovation, and to make sustainable building mainstream building. Now here is your host and the principal thinker at Build Tank Inc., Robbie Schwartz. Hi, Robbie Schwarz here, and today I'm speaking with Nigel Watts, VP of Products with RIA LLC. RIA is a compact airtight distribution system designed to work with traditional forced air furnaces. Yes, we're talking about replacing difficult to install and difficult to seal hard duct and flex duct. This is a transformational technology that is meant to be installed entirely within the home's conditioned space. Starting with a home run manifold on top of the furnace, the air is delivered to each room through three inch flex ducts supplied high on the interior wall and thrown across the room to promote mixing. We'll learn about Nigel's start as an industrial designer and how he and his team are bringing this new technology to market. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Nigel. Thanks so much for joining us on the BuildCast. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Robbie? Great. Um, so I wanted to talk to you um, really largely with regards to the RIA um, mm-hmm. product, uh, which is a compact air distribution system. But before we get into that, I um, found out through a little research that you're an industrial designer uh, by trade. So I wanted to to know a little bit more about um, how you got interested in that kind of line of work. Yeah, that's a, it's, it, it is interesting, right? When you start to think back in terms of what, uh, you know, how you got to where you are today, right? It's always, I always like to ask people that when I meet them, you know, how did you end up doing whatever you are you do? Because it's, it's usually something quite interesting. But for me, um, you know, industrial design was 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 something that I'd never heard of until I was, I think I was in high school, you know, sitting in front of the career counselor asking me the question, what do you want to do with your life? <laughs> and this yeah. was back in the 1970s, right? A long time ago. And uh, I said, well, um, I like I, I like science. I like um, I like technology. You know, I like art. Um, I've got no idea what I want to do. <laughs> And um, he sat there and thought about it for a moment, and um, and then he popped this brochure from a, a, a design school on my desk. It, this was in England in, 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 yeah. in the late 70s. And uh, I looked at it, and I flipped through a couple of pages, um, and it was drawing cool stuff, and it was engineering things, and I'm like, I want to do that. That sounds like a good idea. Yeah. So um, I spent the rest of my, my high school kind of focused a little bit on, you know, topics and subjects to, that would kind of guide me in the right direction somewhat, uh, fairly limited. But that's how I first came, heard about it and, 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 and learned about the discipline of industrial design. Great. And uh, just because I don't really know, but I've heard uh, things that getting into um, uh, post high school, I don't know if you call it high school in, in England or not. Yeah. Uh, is is a lot different than the process that we go through in the states to get into to college and whatnot. So can you explain that process and then the university that you went to? Yeah, yeah. So basically, um, at that time, 
you know, high school went up to the age of 16. Um, and then you had a choice. Uh, you went into the workforce um, or you stayed on at high school for an additional two years, which is like a college prep kind of a process where you focused your subjects a little bit on things that you thought might be what you needed in order to get into a college of, 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 of a track that was interesting to you. Um, and so I did that. And I actually then did a year at uh, basically an art and design school, a local school in Newcastle in the north of England where I grew up. And um, that, 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 that helped me kind of fine tune my skills a bit more, um, you know, artistically, and then just in general knowledge about design and history of art and subjects that were somewhat relevant to what I, was, what I thought I was getting into. Um, so I did a year of art school that was kind of it was kind of fun and and explorative. Um, and, and then I applied to I, I looked at a few schools at that time. Um, there was Newcastle University, which is my local university, um, which had a very good industrial design school that I believe Johnny Ive from Apple actually uh, attended a uh, little, little little before I did uh, before uh, before I went to school. And um, then I also looked at, I think, uh, Manchester University as well, good design. And then I saw uh, Coventry University at that time, and they had an industrial design uh, uh, course. It was a four-year course. Uh, it was a, an honors degree uh, that was focused on transportation, so kind of automotive design. And I'm like, oh, well, I like cars. That sounds like even more fun. So, yeah. and, and had the bonus that I could actually um, uh, uh, kind of move away from home a little, so ex, you know, yeah. uh, exploit my my tendency, my shy tendencies, and see if I could actually you know fix some of that, my introvert introvertedness. Um, and so I picked that school because it was it was it was a little bit distance away from home, and I would have to stay away from home and all that kind of stuff. Cool. So you you uh, went into this with the hope of uh, maybe working in Detroit or or in Germany or. Yeah, yeah. Basically, you know, um, in general, with automotive design, there's there's, there's the kind of the uh, the bachelor's degree level, and then there's the postgraduate schools as well. There's a couple of those. As Detroit has as a center, Pasadena. Uh, there's one in London and uh, one in um, in Switzerland as well. And so that was a thought on my mind, but um, that was that's a very very specialized and very stylistic. It's very much about car styling rather than pure, you know, actual design and engineering of things. Mm -hmm. So uh, I went through that course thinking, you know, some opportunity will pop up somewhere. Um, but, you know, as the this is in the early 1980s in the UK and the economy was terrible. It was 10% unemployment. It was very depressed. Um, so we were all quite nervous about, about uh, what opportunities were going to come our way once we graduated. Yeah. So and, uh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. And um, so through that course, uh, as we've gone through the, the, the first, second, third year, um, um, everything was fine and uh, we were all progressing pretty well. And uh, the, at the end of the third year of that course, there's a six month mandatory uh, uh, internship. Um, and this is where my career kind of took a turn, which was kind of weird. Uh, but, you know, some, sometimes these things happen. Um, we, there was a few opportunities popped up for internships. Um, a couple of them were, several were in the UK and a couple were, were, were outside the UK. And there's one popped up with Mercedes-Benz in Germany, in southern Germany, in Stuttgart. Um, and um, our, our placement uh, coach basically said, hey, I have this opportunity, who wants to go and, and do this? 
uh, six months in Germany, and um, I've never been abroad, let alone any, anywhere, yeah. uh, really. And um, I put my hand up, and my my roommate put his hand up and said, oh, "I'll give it a try." So we looked at each other and said, "Well, we both can't go. Let's flip a coin." So we said, "Best of three, and I won." So right. that's how I ended up in Germany in, for six months, and that actually really helped me um, get my job, my first job with GE Plastics in the Netherlands because. They wanted someone who'd at least been abroad and you know, had some experience living living outside the UK, um, and that um, yeah, worked for me. So <laughs> flip of a coin, there you go. Great. So it sounds like industrial design really uh, is a marriage of this artistic side and this engineering side. Yeah. Uh, is it is it kind of a 50-50 split, or is it more engineering than than art? I'd say today it's more engineering than art. Um, you know, it's, I, I like it. It's very similar to architecture in a way, right? It's a similar kind of thing. You have to kind of merge that that idea of creating something beautiful or something practical or functional together with uh, something that actually works, <laughs> that can actually be made, can, can be produced and is cost, you know, is in the, the right area of, you know, the right cost realm of, of what you're shooting for. And, and um, yeah, so it, it is a, it changes a bit in terms of the blend. But the way I look at it, it more, I look at it more in terms of um, something that's, uh, it's like a melting pot of, of, of needs, right? And you're at the center of it. So you have to look at it from, okay, what does my user need? What's, what's, what's their fundamental functions and functionality that they'd want out of this product? Um, what does the marketing department who's going to sell and, and the sales team selling this product, what do they need? Um, what, is the, uh, what, what does the business need from a cost perspective? Um, what does manufacturing say about making this product? Um, you know, they have requirements and restrictions, and then there's uh, there's standards, industry standards that you have to comply with. So you have to kind of look at all those different perspectives, which you know you have to kind of take all those points of view, and then you have to merge them all together into a design that you you think is good and 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 and, and fulfills all of those needs. Um, so it's a it's a it's an odd discipline, but it works well for a lot of different things. So once I'd learned how you do that and really try and be empathetic towards all audiences who are who, who need this product and who are marketing and selling and, and, and producing this product, um, once you look at all those different perspectives, you then have to kind of put in your mind, put it all together. Um, so it's a good thing, it's a good discipline from that perspective because you can apply it to pretty much anything, right? If yeah. you're a software developer, you have a similar kind of way of thinking about it. If you're an architect, if you're um, if, you, if you're in, in, in business development and you're working with customers, and you know, always being empathetic or being able to look at it from somebody's point of view is important. Yeah, um, it seems like uh, you, you probably wouldn't get it right from the start. So, how many iterations of a product are you creating before you generally think it's it's uh, right for market and ready to go? Oh, it's. You know, in, in most cases, it's going to be dozens, hundreds. You right. know, in some cases, right? Oh, yeah. You 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 will go through many iterations. You have basic concepts, and uh, that's where you obviously would start with just a sketch or or or, or an idea on a napkin, literally. And you, it, it's constant iteration, right, all the way through till it's produced, um, because you have to again take all those things into account, and you've got to tweak and modify and change. So. You know, with our system, with RIA, with the different components we had, we had literally dozens of versions um, and uh, to, to get to the final one. And, um, you know, today, 
it's a lot easier perhaps than it used to be because we have things like 3D printing and and computer-aided design where we can model things and we can test and and evaluate uh, you know the components without having to build a real prototype. Um, uh, it, it makes it a lot easier and you can do a lot more iterations and so you get to a better result I think because of it. Yeah, interesting. So you started in the automotive realm and then went to GE Plastics. Mm -hmm. um, how did you get interested in buildings and, and doing uh, this type of uh, engineering and design in the building realm? Yeah, it, it, interesting because I'd never considered it at all right when I was at school and into when I was doing automotive design in, in college and, and on into GE initially. Um, but once I started working with GE, you know, we had different groups uh, that, that, that provided design services to, to manufacturers. I was serving the automotive industry, so it was, you know, all the usual suspects uh, and their and their kind of uh, and their uh, tier one suppliers, the molders and and working on plastic components. Um, anyone from Volkswagen, Mercedes, Benz, you know, um, uh, Ford, everybody uh, out there we were involved with. Um, but you know, even going back to art school, you know, I was that was when I was really introduced to art history and design history. And during that time frame, you know, I started got interested in Bauhaus and the Bauhaus movement as a as a as a style and a, and a methodology and a, and a method of thinking about design, and uh -huh. really latched onto that. And I thought that there's some great principles there. You know, the guys there, um, you know, uh, Walter Grobius and Mies van der Rohe, and, and his his simple less is more I, really resonated with me as a, as a concept. Yeah. You know, uh, don't 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 add more to something if you don't need to. It's, that was his 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 philosophy, and and all the way through the other folks like Le Corbusier and Calatrava and Frank Lloyd Wright and Norman Foster. Right? So I, I got familiar with those people fairly early on, and, all, and had lots of books about them, and and, uh, and and just loved the work they did. Never thinking I'd get really that involved in it. I just kind of appreciated it from afar. Um, and then when I was working in GE, we had, like I said, we had a couple of different groups. I was the automotive group. We also had a product group that got involved somewhat in some some home building uh, and, and, and construction products. Um, yeah. Plastics wasn't readily used much, you know, maybe small components, electrical components, lighting and things like that. Um, and nothing really major. Um, but I was interested in that anyway and participated in a couple of projects along the way um, uh, as I went through my years in, in, with GE in the Netherlands. Um, and then, um, you know, during that time, I'd kind of been keeping my eye on, on the U.S. and I'd always wanted to move to the U.S. I don't know why, but I was actually wanted to go to MIT, but I was neither rich enough nor smart enough to get in there <laughs> anyway. So that would never happen, but always loved the idea of, of spending some time in the U.S. And obviously GE's headquarters was in was in the U.S. Um, and the plastics group's headquarters was in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. So eventually I got a transfer. I just kind of kept an eye out. And um, in in that group there in, in in GE headquarters, they were doing only consumer-based type uh, products and industrial products, not automotive. Um, and um, and uh, I'd been involved in several different programs there working on um, you know, exterior siding and windows and lighting and other house home related products. Um, and um, kind of in, in that time frame, um, a couple of my colleagues um, who uh, now run Ibacos over in, uh, in Pittsburgh, um, I'd worked with back, uh, back in the old days in, in, with GE in Europe, in Netherlands. 
and they'd started up started up Ibicus in the US um, around about 1993, and I had connections with them. They had just completed a really cool um, uh, industrial design slash architectural program with G, which was called the uh, the uh, uh, home home li uh, was it? Uh, living environments it was called. Mm -hmm. And um, that was basically a concept house. Like you would do a concept car if you were a manufacturer. They did a concept house, built the whole house in in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and uh, put into that any ideas related to plastics, components, and systems that uh, they could think of uh, within a home. Um, it was way ahead of its time, but a really cool project. Talked about modularizing the home, talked about uh, modular components in the home, manifolds for plumbing, um, um, new, new technologies for uh, TVs and windows and, and all sorts of different things. So um, that kind of lingered on and I kind of helped work on some of that, those components and those ideas as they developed uh, later on in the, in the 90s, uh, working with various manufacturers. Um, and then I just bugged them uh, for as long as I could until um, they gave me a job at Ibicos in Pittsburgh. So uh, then I ended up really in the home building industry at that point. Yeah. Um, and were, were you still concentrating on building things out of plastics? Uh, was that kind of your specialty? Yeah, for the most part. Um, it, while, um, well, it, it kind of expanded from there, actually, to be honest with you, because um, that was a good background of mine. But we were very conscious of, you know, what was feasible in the industry. Um, you know, not everything can be made out of plastic. Uh, some things shouldn't be. It's, uh, you know, it depends on what it is. So my, my, my kind of uh, palette, if you like, expanded uh, into just general uh, technologies and, and, and systems within home building in general. So using current materials at the time and looking at different ways to you know, modularize um, the, 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 the bathroom, for example, a five by eight bath as a modular unit um, or something like a, you know, creating a better interior finish using uh, new components uh, that would help speed up you know, the drywall process um, um, and also uh, other kind of complete tangent work uh, such as uh, the work we did with Build IQ, developing uh, online training courses to improve home building quality. So I got into some digital work at that point as well, uh, looking at building these uh, a, a digital library and uh, a series of uh, training courses that would uh, kind of try kind of drive the, the, the improvement of quality. Yeah. So building science must have uh, come into yeah. your world. Um, it's not something that you studied at, at school, I'm guessing. It's something that no. you acquired. No, it's true. And, and I am still a student of building science, that's for sure, right? Compared to the, the folks that are out there today who are, who are obviously way more knowledgeable than I am. But it, it's a, it was a component of, of, of what we needed to understand. Um, and, you know, obviously uh, it's important to, for, to fundamentally understand building science. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to design a product for a house. Um, it's just not going to happen. Um, yeah. And, and I, had, I had great teachers, right? I had, you know, folks like Anthony Grisolio at Ibicos and Brad Oberg, the late Brad Oberg, who yeah. was a fantastic wealth of knowledge. Uh, along with uh, you know the other folks in the industry, Joe Steebrook and, and 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 others, and Mark Liberté, and I paid a lot of attention to what they published and said, and 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 were teaching the industry and trying to move it in the right direction. Um, so so that started to become part of my understanding of of, of home building, um, and uh, then try to apply that right where, where necessary. You know, using those guys as experts a lot <laughs> because yeah. 
and my limited understanding, but um, yeah, it, it 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 is an integral part of of, of home building, and uh, I'm glad to see it's 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 making progress, right? It's it's sometimes it's a slow, it's a hard slog to get the home building industry to change. Uh, change yeah. change is, is tough, but you see it over, you know, now I've been in it 20 years, you see the difference between, you know, where we were in 2000, where flashing a window was, you know, who know who knew how to flash a window. Today, it's pretty consistently, everybody's doing the right, doing it the right way, right? Just like they were teaching 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So was it around this time uh, when you started to work at Ibicus that um, airflow through HVAC systems started to hit your radar screen? It, it it was it, it, there was a few things going on there at that time that I wasn't directly involved with, um, and then this is so look, looking back now to 2008 2009. Then we had the crash, uh, and um, basically with Ibicus as with everybody else, laid off most people, including me. Um, and um, I I basically had to sit there and think about okay, well now I have to find a job somewhere else, and there's no jobs available, so. Um, uh, I, I kind of leveraged my technical knowledge in terms of uh, uh, online training and content and uh, secured a job at the Society of Automotive Engineers, which are actually based in Pittsburgh, coincidentally. Um, and uh, I worked there for a few years and actually learned a lot more about uh, um, you know, managing the content and uh, training materials and really digital products, um, which actually turned out to be quite useful in the end. Uh, as during that time, I was with SAE. Uh, I kind of moved. Uh, I, I I I pushed the uh, Ibicus folks to, uh, after a little while to say, "Hey, you know, when when are you going to hire me back? <laughs> you know, you, this is, you know, this is where I belong. <laughs> this is this is where I need to be." And they're like, "Well, you know, give it a bit more time, and we're not quite sure. And let's wait for the for the markets, to, you know, the industry to pick up again." And I just bugged them a few times. In 2016, yeah. I was able to jump back in, and that's when they had. Uh, been doing the research work on this uh, idea of a small duct system um, and, uh, and and kind of had completed all the fundamental research through Department of Energy grants and we're just getting the program going and they said hey why don't you jump on board and, and manage the program and see if we can get this to a, a point of commercialization. Yeah so a development like this must start with a fundamental problem or question that you're trying to solve Right. Um, at that time, do you remember what that question was? I think fundamentally it was, uh, can we cost effectively and efficiently get ducts uh, into conditioned space where they belong um, from an energy perspective? That was DOE's focus, right? And, 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 and will it work? Will it provide a better product in the end? Will it create more comfortable homes or improve comfort in some way? That was the fundamental driving force was, can that be done? As a, as a real commercial solution. So it, it really started not from a leakage perspective, but from a duct location perspective. Yeah, duct and, and energy, right? It's the driving force behind that was the DOE, of course, was yeah. they knew that, you know, it, it in the end, it, it makes no real sense to put an air handler and ducts in an attic from an energy perspective, right? It's, it's crazy when you think about it. I'm going to Put my air handler and my ductwork in a 150 degree attic in Phoenix. It's like, yeah. why are you crazy, right? Um, and and in some markets, it's, yeah, we it's, still do it. <laughs> it's not done that way. And you know, Florida eventually kind of at least said, well, let's get the air handlers out of there because they're really a pain in the butt to you know to to um, 
to to uh, uh, service and maintain up there. They're gonna they're gonna break down sooner. You know, they're gonna have problems sooner. Just just uh, just doing any maintenance on them doesn't make any sense. So is, and it, is that a code in Florida? It is, uh, yeah, I believe it is now. Yes, and it's um, in the condensation risk as well, of course, right? With a, you know, yeah, you might be insulating the ducts to protect them from condensation, but you have this big metal box that has maybe a little bit of insulation in the in the coil, but it's a big metal box that's uninsulated. Um, it's not making a lot of sense to keep it up there. Yeah. Um, so it depends on where you are in the country as to what the what the code says you can do there. Um, but you know, again, it's. I think it. What what is the energy loss? I think it's thirty percent if yeah. you're there, there in the attic you're, that you're just wasting. Um, and that was that. That's what's been driving the codes. You know, the, the latest code changes in Washington State and soon Oregon and others coming down the line will be. If you're going to put ducts in an attic, you're going to have to do some pretty serious uh, 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 modifications to the way you build your attics to make yeah. that happen. It's interesting in the, this newest round of the 2024 IECC development, I just put in a proposal to try to mandate putting at least the air handler into the conditioned space. Yeah. We have this other kind of, I think it's a rather bizarre option of being able to bury ducks and whatnot uh, as, a, yeah. as a way of getting around bringing the duct into conditioned space. But at least as a first step, like what Florida yeah. did, it yeah. makes sense to bring yeah. that air right. yeah. yeah and, and you know that so so that it, that in itself in many markets is, you know for a builder is a problem okay well yeah where am i putting this thing uh you know i'm pretty tight on floor space in my houses houses are fairly tight in size you know and the, on the locks they're on is fairly tight um you know i'm going to use up you know what what is it going to be uh, four six eight square feet of, uh, of of living space for a mechanical room, um, but yeah. they recognize the value of doing so, right? And uh, obviously, uh, it's a trade-off, right? I either build a platform in the attic uh, to put the air handler on, and I got to run wiring up there. I got to run condensate line. I got to have a hatch up there to get up there to service it. Um, it's more risky for the installers to put it all up there, so that's a cost, and you got to you got to weigh that against. Putting, a, you know, finding, you know, a three by four space on the, on the in the in the floors below to to put a mechanical closet, and in the end, the cost difference is not significant. Um, it's really very similar. Um, it's just a it's a change thing. It's a mental thing. It's a it's it's getting them to see the whole picture, um, which is what we always talk about, and you guys always talk about. And you got to look at the whole picture in order to to understand what the ben what what the end result is going to be and what the benefits are. Um, and if we can't find it, if we can't find that solution for them as a value proposition, then we we won't be successful, right? So, uh, but it's it's so far so good. It's 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 making sense to the to the to the builder to the architect, um, and uh, we're working through those as we as we keep going as we move on. Yeah. So the first approach is to bring the air handler into the conditioned space. Yep. Then my guess is that your your first approach from the duck side wasn't um, to create a whole new duct system but probably to raise raise or drop ceilings or uh do a truss design where you can bring right the in and um it was a lot of that work was probably done uh at ibicus as well yeah yeah really early on they looked at several options um the very first real pro functioning prototype i think actually used uh schedule 30 uh 
uh, drain pipe <laughs> as, a, as a means to get the air around. Unfortunately, you can't use that because it's uh, it's not code compliant, doesn't meet 181's uh, requirements. Uh, it would never pass, um, but it was a good way to test it out. Um, and it was about the, you know, was, they, they figured that that kind of three inch size kind of started to make sense in terms of, you know, uh, being able to push the air around the house and, and get it to where it needs to be. Um, and coincidentally, three inches is a good size to run up a wall. So if you have a two by four wall, fits great. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that kind of drove, and then it was it, it came down to the practical aspects of well, rigid pipe in walls and fitting it in there and snaking it through places. It's really really hard, right? It's 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 a lot of labor for the for that much pipe, if you like. So that's where uh, we 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 kind of uncovered the uh, the current flex duct that we use. Uh, that's an uninsulated flex duct. Okay. So before we go there, um, 181 is that a fire uh, standard? Or yeah, 181 is is basically required for all ducts in a house in a home, whether it be in the uh, attic or ASTM standard. Sorry, it's a UL. UL standard. Okay. UL standard. Yeah, it's it's basically a it's a series of tests um, that uh, you know you'd expect you want to see for for a duct, right? It's a it's a it's a burn test, so it's called the test is called the Steiner Tunnel Test, officially UL 723, I believe. Uh, which basically takes the ductwork, a uh, piece of ductwork, four foot length. You know, you set a flame at one end of it, and then it measures how quickly it burns to the other. So they're looking for flame spread and smoke developed. Uh, so they're trying, you know, that there's limits as to how much flame spread you can have, what rate it would spread the fire, and what amount of smoke it would generate. So it has to be within certain limits. That's that's the key one. Um, the rest are related to functional, more functional things like a crush test. You know, you can't if you drop a 25 pound weight on it, it has to recover 80%. Um, there's uh, pull apart tests and kind of a, and a stretching tests and, and twisting tests and uh, simple things, simple mechanical stuff uh, to make sure the duct is, is durable enough for, for home building. Uh, there's also a mold growth test, um, uh, 60 days. You can't allow any mold to grow on the, on the, on the, on the parts. And uh, there's also a, a, um, a heat soak test. Uh, uh, which is pretty stringent as well. So exposing the duct to a high temperature for a long period of time. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, all of those are required for duct work today. Um, and um, uh, there's very few um, uninsulated ducts that pass that test. Yeah. Most of them, most ducts that are insulated is partly because of the energy uh, aspect of it, but also because the, 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 the inner liner would never pass that UL181 by itself. It needs insulation around it to protect it during that flame burning test. Um, so yeah, pretty straightforward stuff, but uh, uh, we have to search around a bit to find a duct that worked for us. So I guess that's why we don't see um, uninsulated flex duct, um, traditional un uninsulated flex duct very often. Yeah, yeah, yep, that's the main but reason. The um, PV, you were using PVC pipe to begin with, um, and mm. that didn't pass these tests? No, it's 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 there's too much material there. Uh, basically, uh, the, 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 to pass that test, you have to have something that burns fairly quickly, so it burns itself out, so it self extinguishes almost. Um, so when you have a lot of plastic material, um, it self sustains itself. It's a fuel, so it can keep going for quite a long time. It is basically, you know, petroleum-based product, right? Um, that's yeah. what plastic is. Yeah. 
Uh, so it's a fuel source, right? Um, so you have to make sure that you design the the material, the, the the product to meet that. And uh, and thinner. Uh, did you try to develop thinner walled um, PVC pipe? As no. Well, we actually did look at that. Um, I believe it was with um, um, Sabic, who used to, who who bought GE Plastics years ago. I think they looked at it briefly, but you know it. With it not being something being rigid versus flexible, a flexible product is much much easier to handle and manage in a house uh, than something that's that's rigid, right? Okay, um, I guess at, at this point we should probably describe um, uh, RIA mm -hmm. um, so that that listeners kind of understand what we're alluding to here. Yeah. Sure. Um, so my my first question is RIA. What what does RIA mean? Is there is it an acronym for something? It's actually uh, loosely, it, loosely you could say uh, it's it's based on a on the name of a, a Greek goddess, and uh, you could interpret what she represents as the goddess of comfort or well-being, that type of thing. So it was kind of a loose connection. We just kind of liked the name as well, but um, there was a little bit of meaning behind it that that uh, that resonated with us. Okay. And so the the company Ria is specializing in only distribution. The only part of it of the HVA system that you're specializing in is is the distribution system. Correct. Yes. Today, um, we, we we are we are without giving away too much. We are very interested in the return aspect of it as well to make a complete package. Um, um, there's some. So, some so you're you're there. only specializing in the supply side. Only supply side at first. Yet uh, part of our strategy there was was really uh, to develop what um, what you know what the design community would call a minimally viable product. Um, you know the, uh, the software uh, um, and designers will, will use that term quite a lot. So we focused on what products set of products do we need to create uh, that uh, will get us into the marketplace and 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 be a commercial success. And then from that commercial success, feed future development. So that, that's our strategy. Um, okay. It's not to, go, not to go raise lots of money to develop something, but to really uh, function as a, as, a, as a commercially viable business and then uh, use, that, uh, use that revenue to continue to develop. Right. Um, yeah. So the RIA product is, um, you mentioned it's three inch um, type, a type of flex duct. Yep. Um, that easily is snaked through a two by four wall, mm -hmm. the interior cool. walls of an inter of a of a yeah. home. Yeah, yeah. So basically, um, what we normally say when we describe it to someone is think of uh, PEX plumbing, right? The concept of PEX plumbing, the home run idea, right? Okay. The central manifold, which uh, supplies a lot of uh, all the faucets and, and outlets of, in the house. From a central point, for the most part, a central point. So it's basically the same principle. We have a, a a box that we position above the air handler, which we call our manifold. That manifold is, if you like, just a box of air pressure, and we tap into that box with a series of ducts that run to individual rooms. Um, we would have, on a typical house, maybe 30 runs, uh, for example. Some rooms, small rooms, would get one run. Bigger rooms will get multiple runs, um, and uh, we basically connect all that together with a series of plastic components, uh, which is where my original plastics design expertise came in. 
uh, that uh, these components uh, all, all connect together. We have a little simple snap fit system that makes it really easy to put together. And uh, that snap fit system creates a seal. Uh, so there's no need to have mastic or tape on any of our connections, speeds up the process again. And uh, we then run these ducts uh, through, the, uh, through the framework, whether it, you know, through a floor, whether it be an open web a floor or eye joist floor, uh, to walls, run them up walls. Uh, uh, sometimes we run them in a drop ceiling or in a bulkhead uh, or a thickened wall, depending on the design and design requirements. And at the end of each run, we have what we call a boot. And that boot uh, uh, then terminates in the wall uh, with a snap-on diffuser that then is the visual aspect of rear in the, in the house. So you'll see a, a diffuser on a wall or a ceiling uh, that, uh, that uh, is, is there designed to kind of finish off the system. Okay. Each boot that we each boot that we install has its own damper, and this is part of the the, the real uh, value of the system uh, from a performance perspective, um, because we have a basically a, a almost leak-free uh, system from the from one end to the other. We can control the airflow to each room by a damper that's accessible at the end of the run. Okay. Um, so this is how we balance the house. Um, and this is something that not really done very much today um, in terms of uh, conventional HVAC systems in your typical production home, right? It's just not usually done. Um, and, and, and we can balance the house because the design process itself will give us uh, a, a balanced algorithm for that house. So uh, the designer will design the system. They'll use traditional uh, manual J manual S uh, requirements as is needed, you know, you have to do that by code. Um, and then they'll they'll run within uh, the WriteSoft, uh, WriteSuite design program, a RIA plugin, which helps them uh, then route ducts. And we use all the basic same principles of, of, of design and, 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 uh, and, and um, requirements that uh, ASHRAE uh, um, specifies from an airflow perspective and calculation perspective. Um, and we basically run a duct to a room. It will then predict how many CFM will come out of that duct at the given static pressure for the system, uh, at the given length of the run and the duct roughness and the number of turns in that run. So it calculates all that out and it says that, CFM, that uh, diffuser will deliver 28 CFM. And then basically the designer just keeps running ducts to rooms until the CFM load for that room is met. Uh, if, if a particular room needs 250, they might have four or five runs in there to meet that CFM load. Um, that information is then captured and we use that information in our balancing process. Uh, the other part of the system, which is the, the digital side of the system versus the physical, uh, allows us to, allows the technician who's doing the balancing to uh, take that data Using our app, they will walk around the house with a flow hood, measure each diffuser. Each diffuser will then say, "Okay, I'm getting 24 out of this uh, out of this one. I'm getting 35 out of this duct run." Do that around the house one time. Enter those enter that information into our app, and then our app will compare the actual CFMs that's been measured in the house to what the design is uh, is is predicting, and it will then balance the house based on uh, instructing the technician to adjust dampers in those uh, in those boots to meet those 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 design uh, CFMs so we can get a good match between what's actually been built and delivered in terms of the airflow in the house versus what the design intent was 
and that's basically the goal at the end of the day you yeah. you know you're trying to fulfill the the requirements of the manual j in terms of airflow needs uh, as accurately as you can as, as closely as you can and uh my understanding is that most of the time the supplies are on the interior wall thrown high to that exterior wall is that right. you is that the primary way to install or are there other ways that that you can do it as well yeah it, that's basically it um you know uh, throwing from the inside walls to the outside uh is great from a a, a performance perspective it's great from a cost perspective because you have the shortest possible runs it's great from a, a a a being able to you know manage the load of the house uh, from the perspective of the system uh, the size of the unit uh, uh, is going to be it's, its optimum if you like if we have the shortest possible runs um, and and we've designed these uh, these these components these plastic components to be as efficient as possible to throw air into a room that's the beauty of using engineering plastics and using plastic design you can make them aerodynamic you can actually direct air more effectively than a simple metal bent metal uh, component uh, so we take advantage of the plastic uh, capabilities there and uh, generally speaking we can throw uh, you know a, a, what we call a high sidewall boot which would be mounted high on the high on an interior wall that will throw about uh, 17 feet at 40 cfm and our ceiling diffusers throw radially outward uh, in, a, in a circle uh, they will throw about 12 feet in diameter at 40 cfm so we use those parameters as a means to estimate how many uh, diffusers, uh, uh, how many ducts per, to, we need per room, and, and uh, what the airflow pattern will be in that room. We can actually see how it's throwing air into into a given room. Can you change that that boot uh, that's designed to throw it a specific way at final, or does it have to be done before drywall? Um, no, we, we basically install the system. Um, it's quite possible to do a balancing uh, uh, procedure on the system before drywall, if there's any changes to be made. We're, we're kind of recommending that with our contractors uh, who are doing a new house, if, if, if it's something they haven't done as a plan before. Um, it's a good way to see that it's performing the way it should and if there's any design changes to make, can be made there and then following homes in production, you wouldn't need to do that. Um, so. It, we're kind of using the predictive nature of the uh, of the software to, to tell us uh, how the house should be performing. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, once once the house is done, the drywall is up, we will do our final measurement. That's when we'll adjust the dampers to their final balancing points. Yeah. And make sure that everything is uh, is performing. But if you find out that it's not throwing the way that you expected to, can you um, change anything at the boot to help it throw? throw better no no it's uh, that's basically fixed at this point um that's a future opportunity right to have more adjustability in the pattern of air that might move into a room and i'm sure that's that's certainly something that we've, we've put on our list of potential things to investigate yeah. um other opportunities might be able are, to tamper it down and get more flow and then get more in yeah that yeah. Yeah, well, yeah damper others down and yeah well um we use the we use the algorithm and the dampening aspect of it to to balance a room. So yeah. um, we know that we're getting um, the right amount of airflow into the room in general. The design of those boots was was, was fairly carefully thought through, and this idea of positioning them high uh, actually 
helps us take advantage of, 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 a, of an effect of, of, of being able to stick the air to the, to, the, to the ceiling surface that actually carries it further. I forget the name of the, of the principle, it begins with a C. Again, I can't remember what it is, but... Oh, it's, um, not, it's not cannoli, but it's... It's, uh, <laughs> it's very similar. Conato yeah. effect, I think, or something like that. Um, yeah. And um, my, that. my engineer will, 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 will slap me on the wrist for not remembering. <laughs> um, and so that does help pull air into a room. And, uh, yeah. and then, you know, the whole point of the system being that it has more points of air delivery in a room automatically creates better air mixing anyway. So because we have multiple points of delivery, kind of like a car, right? You get better environment in a car if you have multiple uh, air diffusers in the car, right? And front and back, it feels better in the whole vehicle. Similar principle. Uh, so that air gets mixed much more effectively in the room. You don't tend to have cold spots because you might have a, you might have seen it, uh, a floor register in a bedroom that's a little too close to the return or too close to the door. Well, you know, that air comes out of the floor register when, and uh, immediately gets sucked back around the corner out through the door or through the, through the, uh, through, through the return. And uh, it's not really conditioning the whole room. So this helps that situation a lot. So are you primarily doing a centralized return system? Yeah, we, we, we've very much gravitated to that. It's not that, a, not that a dedicated return system wouldn't work. It's all about the return design. As long as you're designing it correctly and providing the right amount of airflow um, and, and relief back to the air handler, it's fine. We find that most production builders are, are, are using that uh, central return philosophy anyway. Um, and you know, air will go. Air will take the least, the easiest path home. Right? It'll, it'll, it'll automatically find its own way. But we, you do need to have pressure relief in rooms. So you do need to have return. Uh, uh, you know, overdoor returns or, or or jump ducts or whatever it is that's needed. But in some cases, we've 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 seen designs with uh, dedicated returns for a master suite, for example. Yeah, it, it sounds like you put in a uh, this uh, plug-in to the WriteSoft software. I guess the first question is, does is it in Elite as well or just WriteSoft? No, just WriteSoft right now. Um, we had to pick a, a, a horse to run with, if you like, and Microsoft is the, you know, is the, the vast majority of the market, um, and that's just quite a bit of development there. I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll get there with others at some point. Yeah. Uh, Does your uh, plugin also help size the uh, return pathway, the size? Because it seems to me that most contractors just put in random size uh, pressure relief in each room, and yeah. Those, and often we don't have enough net free area. Right. Yes. Um, it, yes. So you, yes, you can design the the, the, the whole system within WriteSoft. Um, right. And yeah, you're right. You know, a lot of rule of thumb is used in HVAC still today, right? It's uh, all the way down to you know how many square feet is that house? Well, in this market, it's probably a four ton. You know, <laughs> you get that kind of stuff. It's like, well, yeah, you know, maybe in the most uh, you know the south facing case, it's four tons, but you know, turn it 90 degrees and maybe it's two and a half or something, right? Yeah. So so we focus on helping contractors and designers understand that it's better to actually do a full design and uh, you're not going to be able to balance our system anyway if you don't do a design. You, yeah. you don't have the data in order to know what to set the, the, the dampers to. And and the balancing process is so easy. I mean, it's a literally a 30-minute thing that they do a startup. So we've made it as simple as possible. It really is just measure 
take and uh, look at look at what the app says. Change certain number of dampers. They're simple to adjust. You put your finger in there and you can feel the clicks, and it's done. Perfect, perfect. Um, so you have a box that comes off of the top of the furnace. Let's say if it's an upflow furnace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, does it matter what furnace it is? I guess you're nope. and what fan you're using is it better with a modulating furnace or uh or two-stage furnace versus single stage or anything like that um you know the 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 higher performing the uh the air handler furnace the better um you know if it's if it's a variable speed or or a, or a multi-speed of some kind it's always going to perform better because they'll perform better with conventional systems too uh, so we don't care but we designed the system specifically to, to to work with the most basic uh builder grade air handlers so single speed units um that's we wanted to make sure that it worked perfectly for those and uh, anything on top of that anything any better performing uh, unit than that is just uh, a bonus it just increases the improves the performance of the system and so you know because humidification is a big issue right in the south so you have to make sure that you're not over cycling the system and and, and creating humidity problems have you uh, so have you completely done away with the trunk line and there's just this box at the top of the furnace? That you yes, tap yes, okay. essentially yes. Um, we've done some different variations on that box. In some cases, we've actually done a kind of a tall box that penetrates up through a floor uh, to to into a chase above, just to make it easier to wrap the ducts. Um, but generally speaking, you know, as, as I'm sure you know that. The long trunks, you know, if you don't start to reduce the size of those as they get further away, you have problems with airflow and tapping into those is, is a bit unpredictable and designing them is quite difficult to do well, right? You know, there, there are good designers out there who can really, really you know, hit the nail on the head, but, you know, to be honest, they're few and far between. So our, it, it, the, the, the central box, the central manifold approach just makes it easier. It, it's an easier thing to do. And, it, that's all usually contained within the closet, within the mechanical closet. So we're not building out bulkheads or drop ceilings for the big trunk, um, or it's a downflow and it's in the floor. Um, either way, it, it, it's uh, that it's very compact in that perspective. Okay, and then you just you can tap in as many of the three-inch round duct as you as you want to or you need to. Yes. Yeah. So we have. Right now we're, we're focused on one uh, material for the for the manifold. It's a duckboard manifold. We like it because contractors know the material, they know how to handle it. They can build those boxes. You know, they build splitter boxes every day that go into attics. It's the same thing. So we wanted to make it as, as easy for them to adapt to this to, to, to the rear system. And uh, they have a we provide them usually with a we provide them with a size of manifold that's needed and a hole pattern to cut the holes into the manifold and then simple three-inch round hole, they use a hole saw to cut it, um, and then they use our takeoffs to to, to connect our, our duct system. So it's simple as possible for them. Um, we're, 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 we're gradually uh, gaining some speed on a, on a, on a metal of approach. Uh, you know, some contractors in some markets just prefer working with metal. They're used to sheet metal, they know sheet metal. So we're working on a solution for, for them in those particular markets or where uh, duckboard is less available. Uh, some you know the northwest for example is not a really big duck board market so um, we're, we're trying we're adapting to that um, so we have a couple of components coming along that will that will help that and gives them the opportunity to use a different material um, yeah, yeah and I, so, I'm guessing you can't use a plastic manifold 
or something that that Rhea, a manifold that comes from directly from Rhea that you stick on and that you could just connect to? Yeah, it's 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 a it's an idea that we've been working on and pursuing. Um, the code requirements and the UL requirements uh, are quite tricky to get around with with it being so close to a furnace. Um, so plastic tends not to meet those needs well. That's not to say it's not possible, but um, we're looking at uh, uh, you know a possibly a plastic approach, a possibly a sheet metal kit, you know that we'd have manufactured and just ship it to the contractor, and then they just unfold the box and and they're ready to go. Um, or they can build their own um, to the specifications. Uh, you know, this next year we'll be we'll be doing some more work on that. And those specifications must be specific for how much air you're expecting to be able to push through each of the round three-inch ducts that you're attaching to it. Right. It, it comes down to um, you know based on the system size and the static pressure required for that house. Um, how many ducts do you need? And that then determines the size of the box. Okay. We can actually, we've done a lot of testing on, on box configuration on top of the air handler, thinking, you know, some ducts are going to get less air than other ducts, and you have to be careful of that. We did a whole bunch of tests on that, found the difference between, you know, the most air-starved duct versus the one that was getting the most air in that box, and there's a little variation, is not really that much. And that, in fact, our balancing algorithm in the end can actually adapt to that. So, you know, it looks at what the real measured airflow is coming out of that duct um, and, and looks at it proportionally across all ducts because, you know, duct flow, airflow measurement is, is, is a bit, uh, it varies quite a bit, but we're looking at it holistically from a, a balanced perspective. So, if we see that some of the ducts happen to be tapped into the manifold, on, a, on, a, on an area where there's a little bit less airflow into those ducts. Um, we can open up the dampers in those ducts a bit more than maybe the design originally said to make sure that that's getting enough, that room is getting enough air. And then the, the system will shut down a couple more in, in a different area that's getting a little too much. Okay. So it's a, it's, a, it's a beautifully flexible system. Um, okay, that sounds very interesting. Um, I now have, have questions about the actual flex duct because mm -hmm. is is that flex duct smooth uh, on the inside? It's uh, it's not particularly. Um, it's it has a couple of good good characteristics. Um, one is the fabric that that's used is quite thick compared to what you traditionally see in an insulated duct, which are usually very very thin, right? Very thin, kind of a mylar, easy easy to tear. Because this is this is basically an, an unprotected duct. It's quite a bit thicker, so when you drag it through holes or drag it up stud walls, and it doesn't rip very easily. It's, okay. a, it's a PVC fabric, so it's, and it's so inside that fabric is a is a woven glass mat, um, which gives it a lot of a lot of uh, strength. It also gives it a bit of shape as well, so um, that helps quite a lot. Um, when our ducts are are, are installed and, and stretched, reasonably stretched, not like really pulling tight, but just pulled a little bit, it's fairly smooth on the inside. Um, so it doesn't tend to uh, capture dirt or dust very much, um, and uh, you know helps with the airflow, obviously. Yeah. And 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 so within our duct, uh, within our design calculations, we have a, a duct roughness factor based on testing of of duct at various degrees of stretch. And you you probably know from the, the industry standards that you see a huge difference. Uh, 
with flex duct, whether it's properly stretched or not. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the basis of the question is that, yeah. you know, the traditional flex duct uh, flow is so determinant on, on how well you yeah. stretch out that uh, and you, you reduce the turbulence that's inside that. that right, that yeah. Exactly, yeah, and and I think we do better than, than the average duct in that sense. Um, we have a couple of, of of advantages, and one of them is when when it's installed in rough end stage before drywall, you can see all the duct, so it's quite easy to visually inspect to see if anything needs a little bit to be a little bit tighter, and you know, and, and especially around corners, uh, that's one of the flaws of of current flex duct. You know, you can't really see what's going on inside, right? You can see the exit outside. Yeah. But you don't really know even how much it's crushed on the inside, if it's pinched too much. All of that is very visual for us. You can see it. It's quite easy to, to, to inspect that. Um, and um, just that, that, that extra thickness of the, of the duct, along with the wire helix, uh, a beautiful part of the, of, of the system is that that wire, relative to the size of duct, is quite stiff, right? So if you get bigger diameter ducts, they're easier to crush because the wire is just not strong enough to resist. Yeah. But with three inches with a with a with a wire, it's actually quite springy and quite hard to crush. Um, so it holds its shape better, and so it tends to be smoother on the inside because of that. And does it? Um, do you have special fittings to go around corners where you can attach flex duct to flex to fitting to flex duct? Yes, yeah. yes. We have a couple of components, uh, part of the connection uh, um, um, suite of parts. Um, we have what we call our ferrule, and our ferrule has a, has, a, has a patented design that has a screw thread built into it. So we use the helix of the duct as a means to thread, this, thread the ferrule on. That kind of is the starter for the, uh, you know, as you, as you call it, a kind of a, a connector starter for the duct. And that threading that on there actually stretches the duct slightly, and the, 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 the wire helix is pulled onto the duct. And it actually creates a basically an airtight seal. It's not quite airtight, but it's very close. It's actually quite hard to measure the leakage. So that's our starting point. Then we have uh, what we call a 45 degree elbow, which is a hard plastic component. Imagine it like a 45 uh, on a plumbing system, yeah. very, very similar. That snaps into place. We can put two of those together to create a 90 degree turn. So if we are going up a two by four wall and need to go directly into a chase or into a floor system, we would say instead of trying to bend the duct around the corner, you know that inside radius is too tight. You need to use our elbows, um, and that creates a nice smooth airflow around. And 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 because of that, we have very little uh, loss from the fittings, much less than you'd expect, much less than you see in conventional systems, yeah. where you might have you know equivalent length of a of, a, of an elbow and sheet metal might be four feet. For us, it's nowhere near that. It's much much less. <laughs> So in terms of bringing a product to market, uh, you've kind of, you were helped, I guess, through the Building America program, through designing mm -hmm. and, and whatnot, you, you had a mark, uh, a product. Um, what, what are the most difficult things about bringing a new product to, to market? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> so many of them that pop up every day, but I think change management is probably the hardest part, right? Is we have an industry, especially this last couple of years, uh, been struggling to, to get houses built. The supply chain problem reared its ugly head and is going to be here for another more year or more, perhaps maybe even longer. Are your, um, are your 
components uh, built overseas or built locally? No, the vast majority of it is actually U.S. built. We, we, we kind of cautioned ourselves on that and made sure we didn't rely entirely on, on, on doing everything in, in Asia. I mean, it's, it's very common to do that, right? Most components, plastic components are molded in Asia, right? Uh, yeah. in, in China, they have great facilities there and they have uh, great uh, companies who do that work. Um, so it's it's not that that's not the issue. Just coincidentally, we decided that we decided to focus uh, on some more local supply chain because we wanted to manage it more closely, um, and 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 we were learning how to do it. Uh, so our our plastic components are all molded by Viking Plastics, who are based up in Erie, and uh, they also have a plant down in Indiana. And then our duct is manufactured in uh, South Carolina by Thermoflex, and okay. we'll be expanding that production. We're trying to move some of the production as we grow uh, over to the West Coast as well, so we can supply the the Northwest and, and California. And but Arizona. even even though they're being built in the United States, there's still supply chain issues. Yeah, it, it's it. Well, everything's connected, right? So the resin is is a key aspect of it. The, the resin production was in Texas, and uh, or isn't you know some of that comes out of Texas. It comes from various places, but that was one source. And of course, in the winter, they had the, a huge problem. All the plants shut down, so that caused problems. But yeah. we've actually, through luck and hard work, I think we, we, we've done well. We can deliver, we can produce ducts, we can produce components and get them where we want to be without, with very little difficulty still, um, which is not the same for, for some of the flex duct manufacturers right now. They're struggling. Yeah. Um, shipping, you know, getting getting a truck to show up and get to, from A to B at a, at a reasonable time frame. that's actually the hardest part from that perspective yeah um but in, in terms of change management you know um the home building industry is what it is right we know that it doesn't grow very fast in terms of adopting innovation and, and doing things differently so you have to spend a lot of time and effort kind of um, um smoothing the path for, for for the home builder and the contractor to get to do what we want them to do um and it, it takes a lot of time and effort um and home builders being quite distracted this year. The first half of the year, we struggled mightily to get anybody's attention. We were really worried about the whole year being problematic uh, from a from a you know from our revenue targets and so forth. And then around the middle of the year, um, all of a sudden, everybody's like, "Okay, let's go." So it, it's we were, we were planning this kind of a growth, and it kind of went flat, and then you know, so we're trying to deal with this this uptick uh, that that. Uh, the, 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 it just is what it is, and, and we can manage it. But um, um, yeah, you know, as I mentioned earlier, thinking about um, the architectural changes that need to happen for a builder. You know, most of what we do right now is a bit of a, a fit into what they currently do as, a, as, a, as an architectural plan. Um, but we are working closely with a lot of these production builders to get them start to think about rear, think about a, a closet with a rear system and what that means in the house. And once they understand that, start to integrate it into their plans, the process is much smoother and much easier. So that'll that'll improve over time as 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 new plans come into play and they've been kind of uh, engineered with RIA in mind. Um, uh, that'll make everything a lot smoother. Um, uh, it sounds like once you've gotten their attention, um, it hasn't been hard to to move forward. Uh, do they? It, are they repeating? Are they are they bought in after the first house, or does it take a you know four or five houses before uh, a production builder decides that that this is the direction they're going to go? 
Yeah, it usually, it, it definitely takes the first one, uh, that to convince the contractor as much as the home builder, right? <laughs> and that's because at the end of the day, the contractor is going to be our customer, a paying customer, right? Because they're going to yeah. buy the components um, in, in vast majority of cases. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 uh, it, it takes a first house for them just to believe in many cases, right? Oh, okay, it does work. And then, you know, we do the balancing process in front of them and then we show them the result and say, look, here, here's how balanced this house is. Um, and so that helps a lot. In many of the pilot homes that we did earlier this year, we put, uh, we, we measured the performance. So we had the builder uh, hold the house off from sale uh, for a couple of months, put sensors in the house, looking at, uh, you know, what airflow we're we getting, what's our static pressure, uh, and what is the temperature deltas, floor to floor, room to room. So looking at the Acker standard there and saying, yeah. um, we, we ourselves, we are holding ourselves to the standard that um, you know we should be uh, have a maximum temperature delta of uh, four degrees room to room floor to floor in the heating mode and six degrees in cooling mode um, and uh, it gives us also the opportunity to to tweak our design algorithms to, to to improve them as well so that data is good for us to have but then we can show the builder look this is how a well-balanced house behaves and we've also had side by sides as well with a conventional system this with a next door house with a in a couple of townhomes, we've done that. And we can see that our houses systems perform and perform well. And in the end, you know, it, it also depends on how well the house is built, right? If the house leaks a lot, it's gonna be pretty hard to keep it really comfortable, right? Even though we've got perfect air balance, perfect air delivery per room in the house, right? Right within our range we wanna be. Um, if you have a leaky house and you have sill plates that are not air sealed and all that kind of stuff, you're still gonna have comfort problems in a home. Yeah. Um, so we and and we can we even talk through that with the builder. And we've we've done a couple of cases where we've had some thermal imaging done and and uh, show them where the leakage is and how they could improve that. And, and yeah, uh, yeah, it, it's just part of the process. Yeah, I always say you know if the thermal envelope doesn't work, the HVAC system isn't going to work because you you there's so many assumptions that you're assuming that the envelope is going to be tight or it's going to be yeah. well insulated. The insulation is going to be installed right. Yeah, uh, all those things. So, you know, that's, we explain that. And, um, but in general, um, you know, performance has been, we've been delighted with it. Um, when we looked at the temperature stratification in particular as one, one good way to kind of look at comfort, right? There's many aspects of comfort, of course, but that's at least one thing we can measure from our perspective. Um, and, you know, when, when you, when in the summer, you're cooling a house to, you know, within a couple of degrees, uh, floor to floor, room to room, that's a pretty good result. And uh, we're very happy with that. Great. Has there been anything that's been easy in this process of bringing a, a new product to market? Oh, easy, oh boy. Um, I don't think so, to be honest. You know, it's kind of funny. It's, everything is, um, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a new company and as some startup, and essentially you worry about everything, uh, yeah. as you should. Um, you know, is the product really gonna function the way we think it is? We've done our pilot homes, we've done our testing, but it's the real world, right? So um, uh, that, 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 that's that been good. I think one thing that um, pleasantly surprised by, you know, is when you get those installer crews, those guys who just day-to-day -day do the work, right? They don't supervise anybody. They just get in there and they, they run duct and they, and they deal with, you know, cutting their hands on sheet metal and getting covered in mastic every day and, 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 and climbing up into an attic and balancing on trusses and stuff. They love installing it. They love it. Uh, it's, that's been the, a really nice surprise that it's just 
easier for them and it's less of it's less of a grind and it's just not as physically hard work and yeah. they appreciate that you know it's it's exhausting have you ever tried to run insulation and run insulated duct in an attic while you're standing on trusses and pulling it and it's it's hard you know it's physically hard work and yeah. i think we i think they appreciate that and they, they get excited about it because it looks neat and tidy and clean and and, and they're, they're proud of it right they get proud of the work they do that's great um so if, if people want to see a system that's installed is, is do you have anything on your website uh that someone could go to to say well there you're you've got a project going in colorado or you're or in you know seattle or something uh, we have um we've shot a couple of kind of uh, walkthrough videos um that's um i'm thinking now where i think they're linked on our website but i could send you a link if you want to put that up uh, and post that out there uh, at the end of the day we care about how much air comes out of that air handler right uh, what pressure um and, and, and what velocity right so um that's what we care about um as long as it's doing that which they all do it's fine um you know california is electrifying the entire state uh, so every house in california at some point will have some kind of a heat pump yeah. no doubt yeah. um and uh, that's a market that actually uh was an interesting one to get started um very early on we did a pilot in in in, in south uh, southern california and um, we talked to the building code officials there ahead of time. Title 24 is what governs, you know, everything in, in, in California from a building code's perspective. And they said, yeah, okay, put it in there and we'll inspect it. And then they took a look at it and said, no, you can't do that. Hmm. We're like, what are you talking about? Well, it's not insulated duct. And, they, and we said, but you told us it was okay. that We could have an exception because the code says, strangely enough in California, Title 24 says, if it's a horizontal duct run, it needs to be insulated in the condition space oh, if it's really? a vertical duct run it doesn't and for we're sound like, or for what reason well that's a good question right <laughs> so that so now your wheels is just like what i was did well why what what's going on here so um uh, what it boiled down to was they wanted everything to be insulated in the condition space because of the they believed condensation and energy loss for the main reasons they said we, we we have an exception for vertical runs with title 24 because it's impractical to insulate those because they won't fit in a wall. And we're like, yeah, but you're saying that there's an energy loss. So, so that, yeah. that was their compromise. So we set about uh, with a consultant over in California who works with the California Energy Commission to see if we could get an exception. Uh, we couldn't get an exception. Uh, they were busy writing the, 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 rework, the, the new Title 24 for 2022. And, um, uh, we got woven into that process and with a lot of hard work and a, a year's worth of back and forth with California Energy Commission, we got them to rewrite the language to allow ducts in condition space to be uninsulated. Um, right. We got some great research, well, well the California Energy Commission um, uh, worked with uh, Mark Madeira at the University of uh, UC Davis. He did a lot a, a detailed uh, modeling report, modeling and report on condensation risk and energy loss and the conclusions of that kind of drove them to rewrite the language based on what we were also claiming ourselves. We we threw every bit of building science we could at it. We had letters from all the builders and all this stuff. So now um, the code is, 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 the new code will be published on January 1st, 2022, uh, which will allow our system to be to be used as is without uh, any modifications. So uh, it's show sometimes you gotta, you got to really go through the building science process, right, to, to explain 
the logic and 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 convince and convince people who were you know the commission very bright bunch of people understand uh, understand that the, the technology and 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 really uh, uh, embrace the change so it was a good victory for us yeah uh if a production or if a custom builder is interested in this um do you have the resources to work with smaller builders as well not particularly at the moment. We have done on case by case basis, um, where we're a little strapped for that. Um, if there is a, if if the, the the custom builder is using someone who's familiar with um, uh, with the design process and using our plugin, and we can we can train people, get up to speed. We also have reference documents and so forth. Then uh, you know we're okay with that. Um, uh, it's not something we focus on at the moment. Uh, we have had you know people will ping us on the website quite often, you know, I've got this house and I want to put your system in. And we're like, I know, I wish we could help, but we have to we have to put all our eggs in the right basket to, to make this business successful first, and then we'll be able to expand. Yeah. So we're letting the, the regional contractors who we work with, um, you know, let them be the ones who are then spreading the word and, 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 and uh, marketing to other builders we wouldn't normally target. Yeah, and that, that's part of bringing it to, to market. So it seems like uh, you've successfully launched it, uh, brought it to market, and yep. you're in this growth phase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, it's terrifying and exciting at the same time. <laughs> well, terrific. Well, thanks so much for sharing that story with us. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, and I really have enjoyed uh, catching up and and learning yep. more about. Uh, RIA and and how it's uh, grown into a successful implemented product after seeing it uh, kind of you know from afar for years and years uh, from Ibicus uh, to now it's it's really yeah. cool to see it come out yeah it's 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 funny you know it's a new product and and um, everybody sees it as something new but for us it's ten yeah. years you know it's 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 really it's a lot longer than people imagine for some of us it's been a long time but yeah, I appreciate it I love, love chatting with you it's great. I enjoyed that. I like the walk down memory lane. Thank you for listening to this episode of BuildCast, brought to you by BuildTank, Inc. To see show notes and learn more about our guests and other episodes, visit the BuildCast page of our website at www.btankinc.com. Thank you, Ben Sound, for our music and to Ashley Owen for editing it. And you for your encouragement and guidance in the creation of BuildCast. You can listen to BuildCast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite platform. If you enjoyed our show and are willing, please take a moment to subscribe and review BuildCast, which will help others find it more easily. Thanks again for listening, and please let us know who you would like to hear next and if you have any suggestions to make BuildCast better. Until next time, be safe and continue to think 0 to 360.